Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. So I'm recording and publishing this episode the week of April 16th, which is now designated as National Healthcare Decisions Day. And this is an initiative that was started about 10 years ago. And the goal is to quote, inspire, educate, and empower the public and healthcare providers about the importance of advanced care planning. So that's what I'm going to talk about during this episode, how you might use National Healthcare Decisions Day to make sure you've addressed these very important issues. And they matter not only because of what it might mean for your own health and life, and perhaps the way you die or um, get care during the last stage of your life, but they also very much matter because what happens during a crisis will very much affect your family and your close relationships. And the reason for that is that if you ever become too sick or too injured or otherwise you're unable to make healthcare decisions, or if you lose your mental abilities, then it will most likely fall to your family and loved ones to make decisions for you. And I can tell you from personal experience that this is a really hard position to be in. I know this because when I was a third-year medical student, my father, who was 61 and working, suddenly fell very ill, dangerously ill. And it actually started with delirium. So my father, who was a physicist, a super smart, rational guy who had always been in charge of things and well in charge of his life, he suddenly started saying nonsensical things. And this was the first sign that something was very wrong with his health within about another day he came down with a raging pneumonia and ended up on a breathing machine. He had pneumonia and he also had sepsis, which is basically a condition related to very serious infections where the infection causes your whole body to start malfunctioning, your blood pressure falls dangerously low, your organs can be damaged. So all of a sudden, there was my father, deathly ill, on a ventilator, sedated, on medication to maintain his blood pressure, and I flew home to Arizona. I had been uh, in medical school, uh, living in Detroit, and I had to make medical decisions for him. I mean, I think they started off asking me to make decisions on the phone, and then I had to be there in the hospital facing the doctors and making decisions that, that I did not feel <laughs> prepared or equipped to make. My parents were divorced, by the way. At the time, although my mother was still quite involved with my father's um, life, and uh, so I think between them being divorced and my being, you know, the person in medicine, it fell to me. And even with the medical background that I had at that time, I was not prepared. And honestly, I wish I had been. And a big reason why I was not prepared was because uh, my father never talked to me about this. I'm not sure he had ever considered the possibility that he might become so ill. Or he probably thought that it 
might happen, but much later in his life and that he still had time to address this because that's what people often think. They, they think that, that they have time, that there'll be time later. But, you know, one of the mottos of people in advanced care planning is that it always seems like it's too soon to talk about these things until suddenly it's too late. So I, I was not ready. Now, he did recover from that pneumonia and got off the breathing machine, but he was never really himself again. He was basically ill and either in the hospital or in a rehabilitation facility for the next few months. And, um, and then we brought him home and he died on hospice soon afterwards. So he wasn't really able to take over his medical decision-making fully again. We had to fumble around trying to make decisions for him. We weren't even told that he was dying, actually. So <laughs> it's not even that we knew really until the end that it was the end of life. And uh, it was really, really hard. And part of the way we got through it was actually a family friend who was a generalist physician came and, and helped us out, which was great because my mother and I, you know, had disagreements about what should happen with uh, my father's care, because this is the kind of thing that will happen if you get so sick and you can't be making decisions is your family will have to make difficult decisions and they'll have different ideas of uh, what might be appropriate. So, um, so yes, it was very hard and I know we did the best we could. I actually think we made reasonable decisions under uh, the circumstances, but I wish my father had thought to address advanced care planning beforehand. I wish somebody had encouraged him to, uh, to think of this. So back then, there was no National Healthcare Decisions Day, but fortunately, things are much better now. We have National Healthcare Decisions Day, and we also, in general, in medicine, have gotten better at encouraging people to address this really important aspect of their healthcare, which is the plan for a future time when they may not be able to make decisions, but some kinds of decisions regarding their health and well-being will have to be made. And another good thing is that now we also have some tools that have been created specifically to make it easier for people to go through this process so that you no longer uh, have to hope that a skilled and compassionate provider will bring it up and walk you right through it. So in this episode, I want to tell you some of the things that I wish somebody had told me uh, those many years ago before my father got sick. I want to give you some useful information and advice to help you take advantage of, um, I know it's called National Healthcare Decisions Day, but why don't we call it National Healthcare Decisions Week or Month? Because it actually can take a few weeks to do some of this work. But if you don't have a few weeks, don't worry about it. Every little bit that you do helps. And if you chip away at this a little bit at a time, eventually you'll have done enough for it to make a difference to your family when they have to make decisions for you. And also to make a difference in ensuring that you get medical care that's a good fit for your values and preferences when the time comes. So we know from research that many people don't address this, although older people tend to address certain aspects of advanced care planning uh, more often than younger people do. But even if you actually think you are squared away, you know, you've, you've done paperwork, you've, you've signed things, you've, you've designated a proxy, you've talked to people. So even if you think you have taken care of this issue of, quote unquote, making your wishes known, as it's sometimes called, I hope you'll still listen because as a professional, I know that uh, most people who think that they have done enough have actually not done as much as they could. 
both to ensure that they get care that's right for them if there's a health crisis or emergency and they can't speak for themselves, but also, again, to minimize stress and conflict and distress for their family or for whoever it is who's going to be making decisions in their stead. So here's what I'll cover in the rest of this episode. So first, I want to explain this term I've been using, which is advanced care planning. And I'm going to explain to you just what it involves and how it can be approached and why it's more than just filling out forms or specifying whether it's okay or not for your family to keep you on life support if there's quote unquote no hope. And I'll cover um, four key steps that are involved in advanced care planning. Next, I'll share with you a few very useful online tools and resources that you can use. They're free and they can make it much easier to address this type of planning in a way that is meaningful and likely to make a difference. Next, I'll cover a few common pitfalls or kind of mistakes, or maybe I I guess I should say sort of suboptimal approaches that people sometimes take that would be good for you to be aware of. And then I'll finish by sharing five questions that you can ask yourself uh, today or this week and, you know, maybe every year at this time of year. So what is advanced care planning? So this is a term that is used right now among health professionals because it kind of reflects the fact that this is about more than filling out forms and providing directions. It's really a sort of bigger process of reflection and conversation that is intended to help people get medical care that's consistent with their values, goals, and preferences. So uh, one definition that I like from the National Institute on Aging is that advanced care planning involves learning about the types of decisions that might need to be made, considering those decisions ahead of time, and then letting others know about your preferences, often by putting them into an advanced directive. So again, I can't emphasize this too much. This is uh, not just about filling out forms. It's a whole process of reflection, learning, and conversation with others, which then ideally may lead to completing an advanced directive, which is basically a written statement of a person's wishes regarding medical treatment made to ensure that those wishes can be uh, carried out or provide guidance if a person becomes unable to communicate them to health professionals. So this whole process is about you learning enough that you can then provide guidance to those who will be trying to figure out how to take the right care of you if you are sick and unable to make decisions, or if you've otherwise lost your mental faculties. Now, people sometimes think that it's quite unlikely that this would ever happen to them, but it's actually quite common. I mean, first of all, anybody can be badly injured uh, in an accident and be at least temporarily unable to make decisions. And then the research shows that among older adults, when they're hospitalized, almost half of them at some point will need help making decisions because they'll be sick or they'll be delirious or a certain number of them come in and already have some dementia. So it's, um, it's not theoretical and it doesn't always come up with really um, life-threatening emergencies either. Uh, it can come up just with a significant illness or some kind of change in mental status. So given that it's uh, quite possible and for some people really quite likely that at some point other people will be asked to make medical decisions on their behalf, how can we approach this? So there are basically four key steps in advanced care planning. 
The first two can kind of be done almost at the same time or, or sort of alternating between one and the other. So one of the first steps would be to understand your current health conditions and understand what kinds of health crises or declines are likely to come up. So some of these are not terribly specific to a particular person. So again, you know, any of us can be involved in a car accident or some kind of accident that uh, knocks us out or puts us in a coma or either makes us unable to make decisions or possibly puts us in a life-threatening health situation. But also, as people get older, certain kinds of uh, emergencies or crises or declines become more likely to come up. So for instance, people who have significant uh, heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease will have episodes where suddenly they can't breathe and they might have to go uh, into the hospital and possibly be put on a breathing machine. Or people who've been uh, diagnosed with a dementia such as Alzheimer's, we know that over time they'll slowly decline and lose more mental abilities and eventually develop difficulties with certain physical aspects of their health as well. So how can you learn more about what kinds of uh, health crises to expect? You know, a good way is to talk to your regular doctor, somebody who knows about your chronic health conditions and your overall uh, health, and just ask. And that is supposed to be part of a conversation or series of conversations about advanced care planning is to talk about a person's current state of health and what to expect, the things that might happen or are likely to happen over the next few years. So that's a key step. The next key step is to reflect on your values and preferences as those might relate to future care. And some of these tie into our, our longtime feelings about health and what kinds of uh, forms of medical care we'd be willing to endure or what our priorities would be that might help us decide whether or not to proceed with a certain type of care, or that might lead us to say at a certain point, this is enough. Now, often these values and preferences are kind of uh, buried within us, and we haven't really found a way to clearly articulate them in a way that can be useful for then applying them either to medical decisions or you know, to sharing them with doctors and our family members. So how do you, how do you get through that? And that's where actually some of the tools that I'm going to share later can be very helpful. So experts in advanced care planning have created these questionnaires and reflection guides that can help you think through what matters to you in a way that can then be applied to your healthcare and in a way that can be shared with doctors and families. Now, earlier I said that the first two steps, you know, can kind of go together. And the reason for that is that it can be helpful to think about your values and preferences in the context of specific situations or decisions that might have to be made. Also, we know that people sometimes change their stated wishes once they better understand what type of health declines to anticipate or what their health situation might be like. That's actually been shown in studies that when people have more information regarding their health state or maybe the likelihood of success for certain types of interventions, they sometimes change what they say they want. That's why I think in an ideal uh, world, those first two steps would in a way be kind of iterative. You, you might start thinking about your values and preferences, and then you'd go get information from your doctors or, or others about what to expect and what might happen. And then you would go through another round of thinking 
and reflecting. And that might lead you to think of some more questions that you want to ask the doctors. And so you might cycle through that a little bit. And the whole point of that is to prepare you to articulate uh, your preferences with greater clarity and also in a way that provides better guidance to whoever might be making decisions for you later on. So also while you're there reflecting on your values and preferences, you also want to be thinking, who do I want to have making medical decisions on my behalf if I become too sick to decide for myself? So again, having a better understanding of what kinds of decisions might be made might help you decide on who's the right person. Because initially one person might come to mind, but once you learn more about the types of decisions they might have to make, you might think, hmm, you know, maybe somebody else would be better. And while you're doing this whole process of uh, reflecting and learning, it's important to not only spend time thinking on your own, and for most people that is important to just think on their own without constantly getting input from others, but probably do want to have conversations with family members or other people who are trusted, because that's part of how we sort out our own thoughts is through that process of communicating and interacting with others. So I think the ideal is to spend some time doing both, both thinking a bit on your own and of talking with others. And once you've gone through a certain period of time with that reflection and learning, then you'll be in a good position to take the next step in advanced care planning, which is to communicate these preferences in writing and in some kind of uh, legally valid document. So generally, there are a couple legal documents that people complete. So one is a durable power of attorney for healthcare. So this is the document that specifies who would be authorized to make medical decisions on your behalf. And usually you can, uh, you can name one person and then you can name one to two alternates. Now, if you don't do this, these documents are regulated at the state level. And if you don't do this, I think in just about every state, they have a, a process set up by which if you're unable to make medical decisions, then it'll be your next of kin who can decide for you. So that would usually be your spouse. And after that, it would be kind of between your children or, or full siblings or possibly parents. So if for some reason you don't designate somebody specifically to make decisions, I mean, generally your family still will be able to step in, but it's better, it's considered better if you actually really specifically choose a person. One, you choose somebody in particular, and that can then make it easier to talk with that person uh, about uh, what you want. Two, you can spare your family some confusion and lack of clarity about exactly who should be deciding and how that process should go. And then three, uh, there are some people whose first choice for decision maker is, is not their nearest um, blood relative or their spouse. There are people who, who have a partner, but maybe aren't married, but have somebody who they're very close to. Uh, or sometimes people feel like, you know, a particular friend would be the best choice. And then there are some people who may not have a spouse or children or near relatives uh, or maybe they do and they uh, don't want to turn to those people. And so um, so in that case, you know, you, it's good to have chosen someone. And one of the options there, if you don't have a good friend, is to actually choose a, uh, a professional. There are professional fiduciaries here in California who can be designated as your um, healthcare decision maker. So that's one important document um, to consider. And then the other um, form of legal documentation that's often pursued is um, 
what is sometimes called a living will. So this is a document that specifies some of your preferences or wishes or priorities regarding the care that you do or don't want if uh, you're seriously ill, unable to speak for yourself. Now, there's also another term for a legal document, which is an advanced directive. And that's basically any form of written statements regarding a person's wishes for uh, future medical care. And often it combines uh, an aspect of uh, living will, so guidance regarding the type of care one does or doesn't want, along with a designation of a durable power of attorney for healthcare. So those are the legal documents that you might um, complete. And then you want to give copies to ideally all your doctors, your family members, certainly the person who is designated as your proxy. And you want to invite people also to ask questions and make sure that the document is clear, right? Because if there is some confusion or ambiguity, it's best to address it right now and not wait until later when people are scratching their heads trying to figure out what you did or didn't mean. And then the last and still very important step in advanced care planning, and this is the one that often gets overlooked by people, is to reassess your preferences and plans and documentation periodically. So people often forget about this. I've often found when I ask people about their advanced care planning that they'll tell me, oh yeah, yeah, I did that with a lawyer 20 years ago, it's fine. Well, I mean, it's good that it was done, but at the same time, this is not a set it and forget it kind of thing. People's needs and wants and preferences and situations change over time. So uh, it's important to revisit regularly, you know, one, to refresh your memory about what it is that you said you'd want, and two, to consider whether the preferences that you expressed still make sense given the way that your health and situation may have evolved. So generally, we would recommend that people uh, review their advanced care planning at least um, if you're young, you could probably do it every 10 years. But once you get older or have chronic health conditions, probably every three to five years would make sense. And then you especially want to revisit whenever there's a change in health status or in family situations. So if you have a major new diagnosis, that's a time to revisit it. If there's been a serious hospitalization, that might be a time to revisit it. If your family uh, life has changed, if you've been widowed, divorced, maybe you're no longer as close as you were before to the person who was designated as your proxy. Those are signs that it's time to revisit the advanced care planning and just ask yourself, has anything changed? Would I, would I say anything differently? And even if you don't change the legal documentation, it's an opportunity to have those conversations again with your health providers and with your family, especially with your proxy. So in short, as you think about National Healthcare Decisions Day, remember that it's, it's not just about deciding a few things on paper. It should be a reminder to think about this um, dynamic process of advanced care planning where you know we take time to review our current health situation we take time to review what are the crises or emergencies that might come up that my family members and my doctors might have to navigate on my behalf. It's a time to reflect on our values and preferences. And then it's a time to sort of uh, look at the legal documentation if we already have it, and if not, to put it in legal documentation and make sure we've designated a surrogate healthcare decision maker. So that would be your durable power of attorney for healthcare and that we've provided some guidance in writing that can help them make decisions if the time comes when they have to. And that time probably will come at some point. We're just not sure when it will be. 
now that we've sort of talked about what the process should look like, how are you actually going to get it done? I mean, it can feel like a big, thorny, overwhelming mess. How does one get started? And actually, one of my colleagues, Dr. Rebecca Sidore at UCSF in geriatrics, uh, I'm hoping to have her on the podcast soon, but she's done wonderful work on advanced care planning for the past uh, several years. And she started off actually designing a better advanced directive for healthcare. So a lot of advanced directives, you can get a form from your state usually. Often these forms are quite jargony and in legalese and, and you know can be a little bit hard to read. And so she created an easy to read one for the state of California that was still legally valid, but was just much more clear and encouraged people to specify things that were going to be much more useful. So I came across this advanced directive when I was a resident and I've used it with a lot of my patients ever since. But what Dr. Sidori noticed was that it didn't seem to be enough to give people an easier to use form that people still had trouble proceeding. So she realized that what they what they needed was actually some guidance in how to have the sort of um, reflection and conversation part beforehand, that, that people needed help preparing to complete these legally binding documents that otherwise felt overwhelming. So based on that research that she did, she ended up developing a website that is called Prepare. The website address is prepareforyourcare.org, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And she's extensively tested it with live users and also in research studies. So that's one useful tool. It's free to use, Prepare, that has videos that are very easy to watch. The website is also designed to be accessible to people who have limitations with their vision. So you can click a button and it will actually read out loud to you what is happening. And it just asks you easy questions and encourages you to have conversations. The goal being to prepare you to then complete an advanced directive. The Prepare website also has easy-to-read advanced directives now available for several states. I think they're working and hoping to eventually have them available for every state. So that's one really nice resource. And then another one that is also very good is at theconversationproject.org. This is a nonprofit that describes um, themselves as dedicated to help people talk about their wishes for end-of-life care. And again, you know, a strong focus on helping people get started with those conversations, those conversations that often even if somebody, you know, nudges us and says, you know, you need to think about this, you need to talk about this, people kind of feel like, well, how do I get started? So the Conversation Project uh, has created these starter kits. They're these PDFs that are, again, like really readable, easy to use and, and help you get started with your own thoughts. They help you think about, you know, who should you talk to? They give you some scripts and some prompts for, for bringing up things. They, you know, have questions that you can ask yourself about your values and priorities regarding to medical care. And so again, you know, the goal is to help you do some of this reflection so that afterwards you can feel more confident and ready to complete an advanced directive. Now, for people who've been diagnosed with dementia, or if you have a family member with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia, so addressing advanced care planning is especially important for those people because we know for sure that they will eventually lose the ability to make their medical decisions and that that's going to fall to their family or to somebody else. So the Conversation Project does have one starter kit specifically designed for families who are dealing with a dementia diagnosis, so that can sometimes be a better fit. And then there's also a physician from, I believe, the University of Washington who was recently featured in the New York Times, who has been working on designing an advanced directive specifically for dementia. And so that can be a good choice also to kind of think about. 
So even if you've already done some advanced care planning, I think looking at either one of those two tools, prepare for your care or the conversation project, can give you a good uh, template or structure to sort of do a refresher on your advanced care planning. So now let me cover a few common pitfalls that I feel come up a lot and that I hope you can be mindful of. So one of them is that I personally think that sometimes people are a little too narrowly focused on end of life. And uh, meaning that I think when people sort of think about their, their directive and what they're setting down, they're, they're envisioning the hours or days before they die. But the thing is that often your family or someone else will have to step in and make decisions for you during something that is not so obviously the last hours or days before you die. So I personally encourage people to think more, um, well, to keep two things in mind. One is that I think it can be helpful to think about the last stage of life, you know, which might be, you know, months or maybe even, you know, the last year rather than the last moments of life, because it's quite possible that someone will be making decisions for you during kind of a final stage rather than a final few days. And then the other thing that I want to point out is that um, the end of life is very easy and obvious to see in retrospect. And often it's not at all obvious to healthcare providers and to families when we're in it. So, you know, coming back to my own situation, making decisions for my father, we did not realize that he was going to so soon. I mean, once he survived his pneumonia and he was in rehabilitation, you know, we knew he was quite ill. We thought we would have another year or two, or even that he might be cured. And uh, so you just don't know. <laughs> That's what I realized, uh, you know, having seen a lot of uh, people go through this, is um, that it's not as obvious as people maybe think it will be when they're completing these documents. So that is is something to keep in mind. And if you can sort of make it a little a little broader. And this is why, again, it can be helpful to talk with, you know, the doctors. They might be able to give you some insight whether you might be disabled for quite some time and, and go through a longer stage when family are making decisions on your behalf. And in that case, you know, what should be the priorities? Can you provide any guidance to help your family make their way through what might be, you know, months or years of decision making on your behalf? Now for another common pitfall. This one I see happen quite a lot. It's completing your advanced care planning without talking to any doctors or to your doctors. So I see people doing their advanced directive just with the lawyer, or sometimes they do it just on their own. Uh, you can do it this way. It's better than not having done it at all. But again, part of the goal here is to provide guidance to your healthcare providers and to your surrogate healthcare decision maker on what kind of uh, care you might want if you were unwell and not able to make those decisions yourself. So you'll be able to provide better guidance if you talk with your health providers, because they will be the ones who have the best sense of what kinds of decisions your surrogate decision maker is likely to have to make on your behalf. Now, if you've already completed your advanced directive without talking to your doctors, no worries, just bring in what you have to your doctors, ask to talk about it, ask to talk about, do you think this provides enough guidance for the kinds of uh, health crises that might come up, you know, for the kinds of decisions my family might have to make on my behalf and, and see what they say. So a third pitfall that I hope you'll avoid is uh, not talking to your family in depth. So a certain number of people, uh, if they address their advanced care planning, 
do it in a way that is kind of private and will barely mention their advanced directive to family. You know, I think some of it is that this can be a painful, uncomfortable topic to bring up. I think sometimes older people are trying to spare their family distress, or maybe they're trying to spare themselves distress, right? So I think it's understandable that people sometimes have a certain reluctance to, to talk about it. And then some people do talk about it, but they talk about it kind of briefly and they say vague things like, well, you know, so just to review, don't keep me alive if it seems hopeless. And the, the problem is that that's, that's awfully vague. So even though it can seem a little challenging to get started, that's what those tools that I mentioned are there for. They're there to make it easier for you to have these conversations. That's why it's called the Conversation Project. And they can help you think through and talk about things in a way that's more substantive. And remember, again, the goal is to increase the chance that you'll get health care that's right for you when the time comes that your family has to make decisions on your behalf. And the goal is also to provide them with some guidance so that they'll experience less stress and less indecision and maybe less conflict within the family. Because even if you do pick a single person as your healthcare decision maker, which is what we recommend, Often that person won't be making decisions entirely in a vacuum. The rest of your family will have opinions and want to be involved as well. So the more clarity that you can provide, the better for, for everybody. And you also want to you know, not only talk to your family and your surrogate decision maker about your preferences, but, but don't forget to listen and ask them, do you have any questions? Do you have any concerns, right? And give them an opportunity to bring up what their questions might be. Because first of all, that's an opportunity for you to clarify a little bit or realize where there's some spots where maybe you need to get more information or maybe more guidance from the doctors. But, but also, depending on their questions and what they say, you might end up concluding, gosh, I thought that this person was a good fit for this role. And, and maybe, actually, maybe actually they're not the ideal person, right? And, and it's better to know that sooner. So I would say that often people have not done as much talking to their family and surrogate healthcare decision maker as would have been helpful to do. And so I, I want to encourage you to, to consider that and to use some of these discussion tools that I'll be linking to in the show notes to help guide you and encourage you in having these conversations about a topic that often feels difficult because we're talking about the end of life or a time when somebody, you or um, a family member, might be very, very ill. And then fourth common pitfall this would be not revisiting the advanced care planning regularly. So as I mentioned before, this is supposed to be a, a dynamic process that evolves along with us as our health and life uh, changes. So don't just set it and forget it. Be sure to come back to it regularly. And then fifth common pitfall, this is specific for people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's or another dementia. So especially if they're diagnosed early, it's really important to make an effort to engage in this advanced care planning process while the person is still able to participate. And an awful lot of families just never get around to it, which is understandable because, you know, they're already overwhelmed and coping with what often feels initially like a very difficult diagnosis, right? The diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another dementia, the realization that, that this person's mind is changing and is going to slowly keep deteriorating, and it's incredibly painful and difficult. And understandably, people often want to turn their attention towards the positive, towards what the person can still do, and towards, you know, making adaptations to allow them to thrive as much as possible. And so they're so busy with that that I think 
taking the time to address and, you know, what will we do later? What should the priorities for medical care be later when you've declined further? That's really hard for people to take on at that time. But the problem is that often they don't take it on. And then later, when that person with Alzheimer's or dementia has progressed, their family is there without enough guidance on how to make a variety of decisions that they'll have to make regarding their loved one's health care. So, uh, so even though I know it's hard, I want to, again, you know, speak up for that, that if this, is, if this is your situation or if it ever comes up for you, a dementia diagnosis, don't forget to try to address that advanced care planning while the person is still able to participate in it. So now, the very last part of this episode, I'm going to finish with five questions that you can ask yourself for this uh, National Healthcare Decisions Day week. And I'm going to be putting these in an article as well. So five questions to ask yourself. You know, one, have I legally chosen someone to be my surrogate medical decision maker? Two, have I thought about my wishes and preferences for my medical care if I were too sick or too mentally disabled to make decisions for myself? Three, have I discussed my advanced care planning with my health providers? Four, have I documented my wishes in a legally suitable format? So a durable power of attorney for healthcare and then some kind of advanced directive or living will to document my wishes and preferences and priorities for my medical care. And then five, when did I last review my advanced directive? Have I reviewed it regularly or after any significant changes in health status? And so I'll stop there for now, but I will be posting links to the tools that I mentioned in the show notes and also links to a few other related resources. So in closing, I want to thank you for, for listening to this episode for National Healthcare Decisions Day. And I want to thank you in advance on behalf of your clinicians and uh, your family and care circle for every single step that you take to clarify your priorities and preferences and wishes, because it will make a difference in terms of your own healthcare. And it'll especially make a difference to those who are doing their best to provide you with care that's right for you. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.